It's clear that for many people, SARS-CoV-2 infection no longer carries the same risks of adverse outcomes that it did in the early months of the pandemic. But it does seem likely that the virus will continue to play a major role in our lives for the foreseeable future. This new reality compels us to navigate complex social, economic, political, and clinical terrain, and to consider the lessons that we've learned from the COVID response so far. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Wafa El-Sadr, the director of ICAP at Columbia University. Dr. El-Sadr has co-authored a perspective article about the next phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. El-Sadr, you write in your perspective article that there's a widespread assumption that the COVID-19 pandemic is behind us. It's time to resume pre-pandemic life. How do you see this current moment in the pandemic? Well, I do think it it's a critical moment in the trajectory of the COVID-19 pandemic, because I think for many people, they really are desperately seeking what many call return to normalcy, meaning that sort of the belief or hoping that the pandemic is behind us and that we can resume life as it was before the pandemic. And I think for people in the public health world or in the health world overall, I think that, of course, it conflicts with the reality of where we're at in terms of COVID-19 at this moment in time. We know that this pandemic is still with us. We know that for the foreseeable future, we're going to continue to see cases and transmissions of SARS-CoV-2, and that we will also, in all likelihood, see new variants of SARS-CoV-2 that will result in some surges in the numbers of cases and associated morbidity and mortality. And therefore, we need to somehow navigate and provide guidance to the population at large at a moment where the population is in a very different place. So you say in your article that the current situation requires a different response than in the early days of the pandemic, including when it comes to monitoring the effects of COVID-19. So how is monitoring more complicated than it was two or three years ago? And what measures are most useful now? I think traditionally, when we think about monitoring COVID-19, we've used and measures like, for example, the numbers of cases, transmission rates, the hospitalization rates, mortality rates. These have been the metrics that we have traditionally used. We've also used as well some health system utilization data, like numbers of beds occupied by COVID-19 cases, intensive care unit beds, patients on ventilators, and so on. So we've been monitoring this pandemic largely depending on what I call clinical and health systems metrics overall. For some of these, it's become much more complicated. We know, for example, that at least in, in countries where self-testing is widely available, as in the United States, that often people who are diagnosed through self-testing, through home testing, they often, and the majority, do not report a positive test result, for example. So counting the numbers of cases becomes of limited value. We still can use, of course, hospitalizations, although we know, of course, that that's a late consequence of a COVID-19 case. And of course, mortality can still be a metric that we can follow. But all of these as well have their own complexities. For example, even counting hospitalizations, there are people who are hospitalized due to COVID, but there are also people who are tested for COVID at the time of hospitalization and a positive test is an incidental finding. So there are these limitations that we are seeing now to the traditional metrics that we've used before. At the same time, we also have learned so much more about COVID-19. And what we urge my co-authors and myself in our paper is considering the broader impacts of COVID-19 on societies, on people in societies and communities, and taking into account some of those metrics as well. 
And this gets at issues, for example, in terms of the impact of the pandemic in terms of income for various individuals, the impact in terms of livelihoods, the impact in terms of housing and ability to pay for housing, the impact in terms of jobs and ability to actually work and during the time of a crisis, as well as the impact on the lives of children and the movement towards transitioning to virtual education and the impact on children and particularly children from vulnerable communities. So what we're advocating for is a broader look at the impact of COVID-19 overall, not just the clinical impact, but also the broader societal impacts that often are primarily felt by most vulnerable communities around the world. In your article, you highlight the current need for a differentiated approach to COVID-19 rather than universal recommendations. So can you explain what such an approach might look like and talk about the challenges that are involved in tailoring guidance for specific populations? Yes, it certainly is one of the challenges we're facing now. And this is based on what we've learned about COVID-19. For example, we know that the impact on a certain community is often driven by factors like the age distribution in that community, the prevalence of comorbid medical conditions in a community, the vaccination rates and booster dosing rates in that community per se, the socioeconomic status of the community. So I think there are all these factors that really have a huge impact in terms of transmission of the virus, but also in terms of the consequences of COVID-19. And these factors should help us to tailor what we do and what the guidance we provide to these various communities. So I think what we do and what we say in a community where the impact in terms of the clinical impact is going to be profound may vary substantially from another community where we know that the impact is likely not to be as severe. We also need to guidance to take into account whether what we're advising people to do is feasible. Do they have access to masks, for example? Do they have access to treatment and so on? Do they can access the vaccines? Because all of these factors can also really very much influence whether the guidance can be followed by the target population. So I think taking into account where people are at, their own circumstances in terms of their own clinical situation, their own access to health resources, their own socioeconomic conditions and status. I think all of these are factors that should guide us in terms of the types of guidance that we provide to these communities, and even more importantly, how we provide these guidances. What lessons do you think have been learned from the politicization of COVID-19? And how do you think challenges related, for example, to misinformation could be addressed during future public health responses? There have been many, many, many lessons and hard lessons from COVID-19. And I do hope that if we take stock of these lessons, that that can help us to not only respond to the next health challenge, but also help us in responding to COVID-19 as we move forward. And I think one of the hard lessons we've learned is the importance of communicating and communicating well. That's really critically important. And that means in terms of the messages themselves and how we tailor those messages based on the target population, their own circumstances and their own realities, but also in terms of who delivers the messages. And that's been a very important lesson that we've learned. We have to think very carefully about how do we recruit the champions within the most vulnerable communities? How do we find the people who are trusted by these communities and engage with them and engage with them early, not during the moment of the crisis, not during the moment of the pandemic, 
but engage with them a priori so that they feel that they are part of the system and they become informed and they are part of the communication tools and communication channels that we use when we face a crisis. And I think we've learned that the hard way with COVID-19 is that we were late in really realizing the importance of community engagement, the importance of finding those champions, those trusted spokespersons, and the importance of engaging them in an ongoing way so that they can help us during the times of crises. Finally, how can public health leaders and policymakers both acknowledge that we're in a better place with regard to COVID-19 than we've ever been, but at the same time, underscore the need for continued vigilance? How do we get the messaging right? Well, that's a very tough question. And I think it's something that public health has struggled with forever. And I think that it's really important that we acknowledge that we are in a very different place and therefore avoid at all costs these alarmist types of messaging. That's really important. We know that we are in a different place. Thankfully, we are in a different place. So acknowledge the tools we have now at our fingertips. Acknowledge that we know a lot more. Acknowledge the mistakes we've made. Acknowledge the lessons we've learned. And then tailor these messages and utilize the communication channels that I described before if more effectively in terms of trying to communicate during times of crisis. And I think that's the balance that we're seeking in public health, is to provide accurate information, to tailor the information to the audience, to the population at risk, at the same time to be able to listen very carefully to the concerns of these communities and to be able to engage their own community members to help us in communicating back to them regarding the necessary measures that need to be taken to protect such communities. Thank you, Dr. El Sadr.